I'm not an AI extremist, neither a maximalist nor a minimalist. It's not about the biggest data set, but it's also not about short and sweet. There is a good trade-off between scale and efficiency. And I believe that principles is the way to find this trade-off. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington. And today I'm joined by Adrian Gaydon, head of machine learning research at TRI, the Toyota Research Institute. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Adrian, welcome back to the podcast. We last spoke in May of 2019, believe it or not. It was a different time. (laughs) We had a great conversation. I encourage everyone listening now to check back to episode 269 where we discussed advancing autonomous vehicle development using distributed deep learning, a lot of what you were doing around MLOps and kind of productionalizing these large-scale models. Uh, It was a great conversation, and I'm super excited to have you back on the show. Thanks, Sam. It's really my pleasure, and it's been too long, so I'm really glad we get to chat. We're going to spend some time talking about, among other things, data-centric AI and some of the things you're doing from a synthetic data perspective. But to get us started, why don't you introduce yourself, reintroduce yourself to our audience, and we can spend a bit of time talking about what's new since uh, May 2019 for you. Yeah, okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Sam. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name is Adrien Guédon, but you can say it in the American way, Adrien (laughs) Guédon. So I'm French, obviously, but I've been living in the Bay Area for for five years now. I've been working in computer vision and machine learning for almost 14 years, 10 years in industry and five years TRI as leading the machine learning research team there. One of the things that uh, characterized my research is a lot about uh, going beyond supervised learning. I have labeled data myself. Uh, Back in the day, a few people that know the Pascal VOC challenge, which kind of predated ImageNet. We're going to uh, Oxford, you know, famous visual geometry group and clicking on pixels. And, and then my, my hate for labeling started around that time. And so that guided a lot of my research to because I think clicking on pixels is not the way uh, to AGI. And so treating machine learning as a problem of really finding ways that machines can learn in a more efficient way without supervision. And so I did a lot of research on using synthetic data that I'm sure we're going to get to talk about today, but also self-supervised learning. Probably one of the things that we've been most well-known for, especially in the autonomous driving space, is we've been doing a lot of self-supervised learning and monocular depth estimation, which has been actually deployed in production and is used you know, in various applications, not just autonomy, but something that is near and dear to my heart is saving lives. And as you know, there's 1.3 million fatalities on the road every year. And so that's something that keeps me up and motivated to work on this uh, very important problem. Uh, in addition to, you know, deep learning and everything being super, super cool. So yeah, so basically that's who I am as a scientist and as a person. I love climbing, my family and stuff like that. And <laughs> with COVID, I uh, got to spend a lot of time with my daughter and actually uh, learn some things about how humans learn, uh, which I'm sure we could get to talk about that too. So yeah, uh, happy to be here. Awesome, awesome. Let's maybe talk a little bit about your focus as a researcher at TRI and some of the main things that you think about. Yeah, for sure. So as I mentioned, going beyond supervised learning has been a big area of research for us. And it's always been a very interesting, challenging position to work as a researcher in industry because you have to focus on science, this big breakthroughs, have an impact, but at the same time, it needs to be useful. So we call this the pastor quadrant. Like you have the curiosity-driven research, you have the problem-solving kind of research, and then you have where we are at TRI, which is really nice, which is where you is inspired. 
So we're not necessarily solving the problem that's right now for the next six months, but we're listening to all the people that have all these problems and all these products that they contribute to. And then we're trying to extrapolate a little bit beyond in say like three years or something like that to say, what is actually the problem that if we hit it at the base, if we work on the foundations, it's going to have a massive impact. You're talking about platforms regularly and things like that. It's a bit the same thing, but except with infrastructure, which was a topic of our podcast, and we talked about the platform of tooling and, and infrastructure to enable people to do machine learning. Now it's a bit more of the scientific foundations, the scientific platform, the ideas that are, again, going to be largely beneficial to, you know, for robotics applications. I mean, one of the big things we want to do is we want to make useful machines that amplify people, whether they be cars, whether they be robots, or whether they be just programs and virtualized. Although a lot of the research we do is about physical sensory motor machines. And that's something that is really exciting. I was riding in our car recently, you know, and we have robots in the office that move stuff around. And there's no avoiding gravity and reality and all the kind of problems. You know, your robot breaks or your car does something bad. It's, a, it's something real. It's not something you can avoid. So all these concepts of AI ethics, etc., they're... Grounding. Yeah, exactly. Grounding, embodiment. <laughs> it's not about a game, you know? Nothing lives in Atari for us. Everything is right, real world. Right. Everything is high stakes and safety critical. And we take things very seriously because they obviously matter because they are made of matter. <laughs> right. So that's, uh, that's, that's what we do. And so the research-wise, scale is kind of important, but we have a, a kind of a nuanced notion of scale. And maybe you can talk about the data-centric AI there and our positioning there, which is a bit contrarian, I would say. So we, we could talk about that a bit more if you want. Let's just jump right into that. In talking to folks about data-centric AI, my first few conversations, I've been asking folks to kind of define it. And I think everybody has similar definitions, mostly around, to be frank, kind of the way Andrew's framed it, Andrew Ng. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. And when we spoke, as you alluded to, you, of course, I think frame it in a similar way, but you also have some kind of contrarian viewpoints around it. Let's kind of start there. What, what's a contrarian viewpoint that you have around data-centric AI? Yes. So as a French and a scientist, I love contrarian viewpoints. So let me start with, a, <laughs> with an opening counterintuitive hook, which is, I believe that in machine learning, we had tremendous progress. And that's why there's so much excitement and we're really excited about it. And I believe now we know how machines learn, but we don't know how to teach them. <laughs> and so I think that's what's kind of a bit contrarian and kind of interesting. So let me, let me explain a little bit. I think I have a contrarian take that we don't actually know how machines learn. Ah. But I will let you continue. <laughs> You're even more contrarian than me. You're a honorary <laughs> French member now. You, you. <laughs> okay, what I mean by we know what machines learn is that there's the genies out of the bottle. Like it, deep learning works so well. In 2012, I had done my PhD in video analysis and using very hardcore math, like a, a kernel methods and everything like that. And it had to be convex. It had to have statistical learning guarantees. And then Krzyzewski arrived and then poof, the whole world turned upside down. Yeah. And we entered the age of empiricism, of things that we have good principles or hence intuitions for why things work. And we managed to make things work. 
even when we don't fully understand or explain. But it does work. And the evidence and empirical evidence is undeniable. And the benefits we received in industry from it, right? Computer vision went from a very interesting problem because it doesn't work to a very interesting problem because it works really well. <laughs> and how do we go beyond and again beyond and again beyond? So we know how machines learn. I agree it's kind of a fairly bold statement, but there's very few people in machine learning right now that are questioning fundamentally SGD and backpropagation and deep learning. Again, because the evidence is kind of overwhelming. So you want to make something work, you will use over-parameterized model that you will learn on as much data as you can get with uh, stochastic gradient descent, backpropagation, all the tricks of the trade, and this huge cookbook that we developed through empiricism, right? Through very, a lot of experimental evidence that we collected over the year that is open because it's open source, that is reproducible. Many people, many different people from many different areas have been building on top of that. So that's what I mean by we know how machines learn. Maybe not the best way they can learn, that for sure, but a way to make them learn, we know. But in the framework of data-centric AI, what I mean by we don't know how to teach them is that I mean, data sets and building data sets and efficiently building data sets and efficiently teaching machines is not at all what everybody is doing right now. Everybody is just following a simple recipe, which is under the name of the scaling hypothesis, which is bigger is better, right? Yeah. And we know, I think uh, some people know at least, that bigger is not always better. And there's a f- obviously a trade-off, a fundamental trade-off. I mean, it's a physical fundamental trade-off between scale and efficiency. And so a question is really like, how do we find this trade-off? So there is the scaling laws, which are very interesting, right? It's very hard to estimate, you know, there's some kind of the GPT scaling law versus the chinchilla scaling law. And did we people tune the hyperparameters in the right way? You know, stuff we learn in a PhD, which is like, make sure your experiments are clean, you study all the hyperparameters, and, but we have limited computation again. Mm-hmm. So there's a trade-off between scale and efficiency. So you can't try all the combinatorial explosion of hyperparameters. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, you make assumptions and then you have different scaling laws that says, oh, models are much more important. Increase your model size much more for a fixed data set versus, ah, you know what, maybe data size and model size is equally important with all this foundation model research that's going on. But when it takes tens of millions of dollars to do an experiment or train a model, you have to work off of first principles. And I think this is one of the things that characterizes our research is something that I like to call kind of like principle-centric AI versus it's a, it's a bit of a different way than the data-centric AI. Okay. Because my definition of data-centric AI is, is a bit more like focusing on increasing the data, which is, I think, what we've seen is not necessarily the best principle. I don't want to spend too much time getting contrarian with your, with your viewpoints. <laughs> For sure. I don't know that data-centric AI necessarily implies increasing. I think a lot of times it, the idea is spending more time and investing more effort with your data. And often the implication is that you're curating, you're making, you're increasing quality, you're reducing the size of the data set as, yeah, as yeah. opposed to increasing it. Like fundamentally, I think the contrast is, hey, traditional academic Kaggle machine learning is like, hey, we want to solve this problem, get more data, yeah. label it and throw it at the model and stochastic gradient descent is going to figure it all out for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And data-centric AI is kind of saying, well, yeah, maybe spend more time on the data and that could involve changing the way you label, 
It could involve getting rid of examples that are bad for your model. Right, right. It could involve using machine learning to decrease the size of your data set. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I think that there's, I'm intrigued by principle-centric AI. Like I like there's something compelling that the way we approach AI should be based on principles. And one of those principles is actually data centrism. Like we should be thinking about our data. And so I'd love to hear you elaborate a little bit more about some of the other principles that drive the way you, you think about this. Perfect. Okay. That's great. I mean, you know really what you're talking about because we're getting to the subtle points. I love it. So, okay. Let me give you a little bit of a, no, a good story has, has some characters. So let me introduce some characters. So what is not like, I think principles are, and let's say, not the best way. So there's a couple of different people in the field right now. There's what I call the supervisors, okay? So okay. big tech, people that label a lot, like more data, more labels, and et cetera, which honestly is most of the really big successes, right, in, in deep learning. Mm-hmm. So let's call them the supervisors. Okay. So they label as much as possible. Again, my idea for that is that I've been labeling uh, things. I've In the open world, I think it's an endless pursuit. You know, you're going to label forever. And we want machines to work for us, not us to work for machines. So I don't think the supervisors are necessarily, it's what got us where we are now, but it's not what's going to get us to the next level. Mm -hmm. So I'm not one of the supervisors. Then you have another area, which actually is important for us in driving, which is called another type of characters, which are the geofencers, right? And you know, probably two of them very well known, you know, Waymo, Cruise, and like companies that are doing amazing work in robotaxi, right? Mm-hmm. So that's what's called like a geofence. I don't know if you've probably heard of this before, but it's basically you're designating an area and some conditions where your machine learning model, in this case a robot, right, is going to design to operate and you know how it's going to operate and you have a safety case around it. And So in safety critical conditions, you build a fence and you describe inside this fence, inside this playpen, my robot is safe. Mm-hmm. So it's like what I do with my daughter when I put her in a playpen. It's a geofence. It's safe. She can be autonomous there. Yeah. And so, again, I think the geofencers, they're autonomous in the playpen. And it's great. And the whole thing is making the world your playpen. But I think it's also a bit of a challenge because you're trying to turn an open world into a closed world. So it has a lot of challenges. So I'm also not a geofencer because I want to work on autonomy. I want something that scales, that learns autonomously, that adapts, and that can be deployed in the world, right? Not just in the playpen. So you have the supervisors, you have the geofencers, and you have the ones that are pretty cool. I call them magicians, but you got to spell the A-G-I, an uppercase in magicians, M-A-G-I-itions, right? <laughs> and so the magicians are obviously the people that believe in AGI and that believe that all roads lead to AGI. So this is the open AIs, the deep minds, and a lot of other, other folks. And especially now with foundation models, people get really excited about that because of the power of language as an API for almost everything. And so the magicians, they believe in the scaling hypothesis. So you're right that the, the story has multiple different characters that have different interpretations of data-centric AI, etc. The magicians, they really believe that scale is the way to go. And if I train on all of the internet, I'm going to have AGI. And if I train a big enough model on a big enough data set, and I have some safeguards in place, right? So I'm not saying that people just do this recklessly because people now are more wise, then I'm going to get to AGI. I'm also not an AGI person. I like autonomy more than intelligence because I want robots to be useful. I don't want necessarily robots to be smart. I believe that to be useful, they need to be smart. But 
I don't want them to be smart for the sake of being smart. I want them to be useful, right? Mm -hmm. And to be useful, they have to be autonomous. If I have to click on every pixel for every frame of a robot for all my life, for it to be able to help me with my chores at home, that's not very helpful. So I think that the principle-centric AI that we're thinking about is more inspired by a fourth character, which is my daughter, Cassie. And there was something weird that happened during the pandemic I can talk about, which is I taught my daughter, seven years old now, how to bike. Okay. And I tried for a year before, and I tried it with reinforcement learning, basically, right? <laughs> which is basically, you put her on the bike, try it, <laughs> and I catch you, you know? I catch you when you're about to do something, so that, that way she doesn't pay too bad of a negative reward, yeah. but encourage her when she does well, and all these kind of things. Add some safety guardrails, you know, with the little training wheels, etc. And I tried for one year to basically brute force the problem with reinforcement learning. And as we know, reinforcement learning is not really good at simple efficiency, so at learning efficiently. So after one year, not so much progress. Mm -hmm. And then I had a discussion with our CEO, Gil Pratt, a famous roboticist, etc. And he said, oh, check out this method, which is a method called Petal Magic. You can find it online. And I'm not going to tell you like details and stuff like this. We could talk about it if you want. But basically, it had some principles about how you learn how to bike, mm -hmm. some mechanical principles that actually relate to how cheetahs take turns and use their tails. It's a bit kind of a, a bit wacky, mechanically speaking. Okay. But it has some principles that are physically motivated, physically grounded, and it has an exercise that it derived from these principles, which is basically just a mini environment and a mini training set. And I run my few training samples with my daughter, five minutes in this uh, small environment. And then 10 minutes later, she was biking. I was like, wow, after spending a year trying so much, like giving her so much data, so much guidance, so much supervision. I tried the supervisor's trick. I tried the geofencer's trick. I tried the magician's trick. I tried everything. Mm -hmm. And then something completely different that was not data-centric AI because I didn't give her examples that related directly to the task of biking. It was not model-centric AI because I didn't change the hardware. Like it was same bike, same daughter, same dad. It was everything the same. And so something happened that she learned really, really quickly. And two years later, after thinking about it, basically the whole pandemic and like, what happened? What happened? How do I make machine learning as good as, as this, you know, as fast at learning and as robust at lit? Because she learned on the parking lot and then we've been biking everywhere. So she's been generalizing out of the domain and all these kind of things that we hope machine learning eventually gets to. Yeah. And so this idea of principle-centric learning, principle-centric AI is kind of what emerged from there and kind of explained also some of the stuff, you know, some of the research we've done has worked spectacularly well, like the sim stuff, the self-supervised stuff. And, and, and eventually, you know, like, I mean, we made 60 papers, but half of those papers ended up in production, useful in production. And you're wondering, why aren't the other ones used in production? What happened with these particular papers that actually made a difference in our robust real world? And so you can't backward explain. And I found some traces of principles and how we use those principles to either design the data set or design the learning objective and that enabled like really robust learning, which includes in particular one thing, which is sample efficiency. I think like finding the right way to use compute and minimize compute, but at the same time, use enough compute to actually learn. So I'm not an AI extremist, neither a maximalist nor a minimalist. You know, it's not about the biggest data set, but it's also not about short and sweet. There's a good trade-off between scale and efficiency and we've discussed. And I believe that principles is the way to find this trade-off. That's such a great story. Is principle-centric AI the fourth character? Exactly. Is yeah. that what you call it, or is there another name for that fourth character? Principle-centric AI is how I think about the research and what we're doing. If you want a name on the characters, I would call us the educators. 
it's like uh, what we said is that we want to find ways to teach machines, right? We know the mechanism by which, you know, we design architectures, we learn with SGD, backprop, etc. But what we don't know is how to make a course. It's interesting that you say educator and course, because the thing that popped up for me was an element of pre-training. Yeah, yeah. As well as an element of curriculum learning. Exactly. You got it. And you know, th these words, they're used in teaching in schools. Mm -hmm. I started to teach at Stanford Computer Vision, and I hadn't taught a course in a long time. And I co-teach this with Juan Carlos Nibles, who's also a well-known computer vision guy in, in Feifei's lab. And so we worked a lot on the course. He has a lot of experience. And so I kind of learned, relearned how to teach a course from him. And we taught 100 students. And, and I taught geometry, computer vision with geometry, which is also a lot of the things we had success in our research for driving and robotics, which is self-supervised learning using geometric principles. And I found that all these parallels between my daughter, between teaching at Stanford, and between our research papers and as kind of like was really kind of wow it's kind of opened a new world for me of like oh how do can we be the educators that use principle-centric ai to efficiently teach machines uh, this is super interesting so when i think about these different characters you know one maybe way to frame it is that the supervisors kind of think implicitly that the path to agi let's say that that's the goal for yeah yeah, generalize okay. the path to AGI is through human labor. Yep, yep. The geofencers think that the path to AGI or to whatever the the goal is is constraints. Yep. Yeah, you know, maybe Amari can drop it in my doc, and I'll, I'll remember the name of the episode. But I had a really interesting conversation or a couple recently about the role that constraints play in ML. The magicians think that it's you know some nebulous notion of scale, which is basically. Or another, uh, alternatively or complementarily, self-supervision maybe is like... Yeah, I, th I think self-supervision is one way to unlock scale. It's because you remove the bottleneck to be able to train at scale, right? So, but it, it's really scale. It kind of emerges magically from all the data that you're you're feeding it, right? That's uh, that's what people get. Like, I'm amazed by DALI. I'm amazed by GPT-3. Who isn't, right? When you see the inferences. But that's the thing is that what I realize is why are we amazed? We're amazed because we don't know how it emerged from the data. And if you talk, like listen to Ilya and all the smart people, right? That's, they're the same. They're like, it's working because we're feeding it more data. And also because, I mean, there's a lot of secret sauce in feeding the data. So I'm not saying, you know, like magicians, magic doesn't exist. It's like people have these tricks, right? And so there's a lot of tricks to make it work. But so the magicians is really about how to unlock the powers of scale. That's, that's what they're really, really good at. I think and that, that's where it's going. But I don't think that's the panacea. That's the end game either. I get it. The, I guess the question that I'm, I'm trying to get to is like, what is that kind of fundamental one word tool or currency of the educator? Like, what is it that they have perfected that is going to be that, that path? It's principles. And so basically, okay, there's two types of principles. Let's like answer your question. You said like, uh, be more precise about the principles. So there's two types of principles. There is the principles you teach and there's the principles you learn, right? So the principles you teach are things you presuppose, right? So some people call this inductive biases or inductive priors or y you name it, right? But it's basically things you, you know is true about the world. Newton existed, F equals MA existed. Maybe we don't have to reinvent it. Maybe we can use that prior knowledge, right? I think uh, some of the things that I've listened to Andrew talk about in data-centric AI is a lot on that also on like, how do we use expert knowledge, but in a data-driven way, right? So it's not like the going back to expert systems, right? It's about like, how do I 
if I know some principles, and it can be ethical principles, it can be legal principles if you have compliance, because, you know, there's the AI Act and all these regulations that are coming in AI and including in, in you know, robotics space. And so if you have some principles that you want your system to adhere to, right, being compliance with, or common sense, you know, like when we talk about embodiment and grounding, you know, that's what we mean. Mm-hmm. So how do we inject those principles into data-driven learning processes? So the principles we teach, and then there's the principle we learn from the data. So that's where we train on the data set. And it's not just we're building autonomous prediction machines, right? That are just there to automate the prediction at scale, because that's what machine learning does, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe what we want to extract is not a bazillion number of predictions, but we want to extract, we want to learn something from what the machine learned itself. And so there's all these cool area of machine learning about machine learning for sciences, et cetera, where people are discovering new physical laws, maybe finding out, understanding a bit better human behavior, because if you want to ins- assist and amplify humans, it's not about automation, right? Autonomous prediction machines are there to replace. But if you want to amplify, you got to understand. And so this is the principles that you want to understand from data. It's a two-way street, in a sense. And I can give you some examples of our research where, where actually this already is, is, has happened, right? This is not just... Principle-centric AI is not just a cool expression, you know, it's, it's actually just a way that I use to kind of define a little bit our successes and, and what we're actually building at TRI. Yeah, I do want to transition to that because I think while this philosophical conversation <laughs> yeah, is really sure. interesting, I do want to kind of make it a bit more concrete and talk about some of the things you're doing around self-supervised and synthetic. Before I do that I, episode that I was thinking about was my conversation with David Ha, the benefit of bottlenecks and evolving AI that was really almost entirely focused on this idea of constraints, not in the geofencing sense, but in more broadly in AI and in other contexts. So your research, where do you want to start there? Self-supervised? Yeah, self-supervised, I think is great. So I think one of the things that we know about the world really well, and especially what I'm teaching at Stanford is geometry, right? When we see the world, when we perceive the world, we have a lot of really good equations. You know, actually, some of the things dates back like 3,000 years. Back Chinese philosopher, I think Mudzi, people knowing about pinhole camera model and all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of knowledge we have about how the world works in terms of, let's say, just physics of light, right? And so when you want to do computer vision, how do you leverage that prior knowledge? And historically, it's been in the way of we hand design algorithms, right? We write algorithms that solve the problem based only on our prior knowledge. Now with machine learning, we want to be data-driven. And so we've kind of like thrown the baby with the bathwater and say, well, it's all in the data. (laughs) And so one of the things, again, as I said, we are always kind of in the moderate route, which is of course data is powerful, but of course prior knowledge is powerful too. So we want to combine both. So self-supervised learning is actually a really good revolution that I'm really excited about because, and that we've been doing a lot of papers over the year, I think like probably like 15, 20 papers at CEPR, et cetera. I think we're presenting four papers at ECRA in a couple of weeks and four papers at CEPR uh, and they're on related topics. And so self-supervised learning is the way where we use these constraints or these knowledge, this prior knowledge about the world, let's say like the reprojection equations, if you're using the pinhole camera model, and we use that as a learning objective. So in self-supervised learning, you're not solving directly what you want, which is dog versus cat or detecting a pedestrian or things like that. But what instead you're doing is you're providing a pre-training objective. And so there's two big areas. One that I was mentioning now is geometry, where actually it turns out 
we can solve the task, which for, in, in, for us, it's, it's a lot about predicting depth, how far objects are, because we want to avoid collision with them or we want to grasp them if it's a robot hand and things like that. So predicting the depth of a scene, turns out you can do that without ever having any supervision. Mm-hmm. And so this is self-supervised learning for monodev and something that we have open source code. You can go to GitHub, TRI page, a repo called Packnet SFM, which has a thousand GitHub stars. And so it's very popular. People use it for all kinds of crazy things because you can train it only from video. So you can just feed it raw videos and what it will learn, it will learn to output point clouds or depth maps uh, from there. And the way it's trained is just by using reconstruction but not just a black box reconstruction of predict me pixels and I'll tell you if they look like the pixels you should predict. Instead, it's predict me depth map. And then if you're right, if your network weights are correct and your depth map will be correct. And then knowing the equations of geometry, we can recreate a past frame from the current frame by warping geometrically using an equation. And then if the warping is correct, the pixels align. And if it's not correct, the pixels don't align, the colors are not the same, and you're wrong not because geometry is wrong, not because 3,000 years of history, human history in science is wrong, but because your neural net weights are wrong. And then you can do backpropagation as GD. So this is going back to what I said earlier. We know how machines learn. We don't know how to teach them. In this instance, we know how to teach them geometry. We teach them by reconstruction using geometry as an equation in the middle to get the prediction. And then we learn using SGD, backprop, and the way we do it. So we have a a bunch of papers. We started from stereo setup with two cameras to just a singular camera to now all the crazy sensor suites. And actually, we can even, because we've worked on the hardest problem first, which is monocular camera, the reason we've done that is because it's a common denominator behind almost any platform. I have it in my phone. I actually have more than one camera. Everybody has cameras. Cameras are everywhere. But if you solve the problem well enough for a single camera to predict depth, then you can use it to predict that for multiple cameras, for cameras that are stereo or not stereo, for LiDAR, for any kind of sensor suite. And that's what we've been doing. It's a very pragmatic approach. It's not to replace everything with a single camera. Some applications might work with a single camera. Some definitely won't. But it's to be solving the common denominator. Again, this idea of a platform, the foundations, and building on top of it, right? So self-supervised learning using geometric principles to teach geometry to deep nets is a big thing we've been doing. And I mentioned the second way that you can do self-supervised learning just for pre-training is contrastive learning. You've probably heard about this, had podcasts over this. It's very, very popular. One of the very cool things we've done in uh, collaboration with a really, really good machine learning professor at Stanford is called Teng Yuma and his students. We've had a couple of papers at NeurIPS. We had iClear, Spotlight, and a a bunch of papers with them on trying to make sense of self-supervised learning, especially contrastive learning. Why does it work? Because there's all these bells and whistles and these tricks and these cookbooks. And in going back to the philosophical discussion about empiricism, you know, we've built a lot of things that work and obviously work. We show that it works, but we don't really understand why. And so understanding why is really important because you have to convince people that are not necessarily ML believers, crazy, woohoo, you know, let's use machine learning just because it's cool. But actually people that need to invest real money and take real risks and putting, if you want to save lives, you need to make sure that you have a a really good justification that your system will do so. And so understanding things a bit more and and the theory and garnering the principles out of the data-driven is really important. And one of the things that I'll highlight there briefly is one of the principles we found from self-supervised learning, which is just learn contrastive learning. So you do data augmentations because you know that if you change the color of things, it shouldn't change your predictions. So you have all these kind of data augmentations that represent properties like 
principles of invariance and equivariance that you know hold true. And you want your system to just adhere to those constraints again, like in this idea of constraints you were talking about. So you train by just saying when you're out of the constraints, when you're out, when you're not grounded anymore, when you're making a very weird mistake, right? But you're not telling it what's the solution. You're just telling, stop making weird mistakes. Mm -hmm. And if you see enough data, it will stop making weird mistakes. And what's going to happen is going to have something that's just pretty good initialization for it may few shot transfer and like small data kind of cases, maybe some things that, that, you know, in data centric AI, you get your experts to label just the right amount. But if you have good pre-training, you don't need more than that. Necessary, but sufficient. So what we found is why does self-supervised learning and particularly contrastive learning work so well? In particular, a benefit that we found was very surprising is that it's robust. Because you would think if you're in the supervisor's mindset, that's okay, Adrian is saying supervisors is bad, but it's just a matter of cost. If you can pay the cost, if your return on investment justifies labeling forever, they're just labeled forever and it's the best thing to do, right? Mm -hmm. Wrong. <laughs> because actually we know that if you just collect, you know, data has bias, natural data has biases, right? And if you just label more and label more and label more, you're going to increase, you're going to create distortions, you're going to have in human biases injected in the labels, mistakes, or you're going to label more the mode and all these kind of things right. that yields issues. Yeah, particularly in your case in AV, where you're collecting a lot of data of the usual thing happening, but the problem is all about the corner cases that don't happen very frequently. Ding, ding. Exactly right. Yep, absolutely. And so self-supervised learning, what we found, surprisingly, is more robust to the imbalance. So if you, if you collect data at scale, it's very imbalanced. You have this long tail of edge cases and rare conditions, rare events, as you mentioned. And some of them are noise, but some of them are really bad. Like you really want to make sure they're very important for you to know and, and learn. And so, but you can't tell from just the data itself. It's just rare events, right? And so what we found is that self-supervised pre-training is actually better than training with labels because it's more robust to the long tail, to the imbalance. And we were like, okay, cool. Another empirical fact that self-supervised learning is a good idea, but why? And in this paper that we actually just presented at iClear as a spotlight, we found the explanation and the principle for why. And it's a bit counterintuitive. So what we thought was that when you do self-supervised learning, you learn more from the tail. You learn richer features, better features from the tail. Because the label is not leading you astray. Take an example of driving. You drive mostly straight, and then you have all these kind of weird maneuvers, evasions, etc. And so when you drive straight, and you say drive straight, drive straight, that's your label, basically. You're just, the model might just collapse on the mode, right? It might just say, oh, it just drives straight all the time. That's enough to minimize my loss. The rest is just weird. There's no pattern. And so if you just do supervised learning, this is what would happen. But if you do self-supervised learning, our assumption was it generalizes better. It's more robust because it's going to learn more. It's going to have to try to explain or reduce the loss on the rare things too. And so it's going to learn better features from the tail. But what we found out is that it's not true it actually learns better, more diverse, and more generalizable features from the mode. Mm. And let me give you an example for, and so we have like very cool semi-synthetic experiments in the paper, a bit hard to explain, but you can look at, at it. So where we basically just probe this and verify this, both with theoretical explanation and with like controlled experiments to, to show that our principle, that our explanation is correct, not just that the performance is good, but that's also we know why. But let me give you an example now, before you do that, is the specific case you're referring to the self-supervised by you've got some geometric relationship and you're projecting through that? Or is it the 
data augmentation, contrastive learning piece. Yeah, it's the contrastive case. So for this particular paper, we found that it's the contrastive case. Because for the, the first, the other case, we know the principle because we teach by principle, right? Mm-hmm. The contrastive one is more the other way around. I mean, there's this principle of invariance, but we wanted to know why does it work and get the principle out from the model after training and why it works, right? And so this principle is it learns better features from the mode because like the example is, if you learn to drive straight, right, all the time, and you say drive straight, mm-hmm. you're basically ignoring things that happen behind you. So I don't know if you've, when I came here, you know, in Europe, we used to we jaywalk. It's like we cross the street whenever, again, maybe the French, maybe that's just me, you know, we cross the street when we want I'm to. I'm from New York, we also jaywalk. There you go. But you typically don't jaywalk right in front of a car, right? You typically wait for the car to go and then you just cross, right? So the jaywalkers are always behind the driver. So when you're learning to drive, you basically can safely ignore the pedestrian in the back. It's not going to affect your policy. Mm-hmm. So if you're very focused in the supervisor's way or the geofencer's way, you're just saying, all right, just focus in front of you. And just what matters is avoid collision in front of you. But in a self-supervised way, you will say, oh, something weird happened behind you. And I don't care about you learning the policy. I care about you satisfying the contrastive learning objective. So you have to understand the world. You have to explain what happened behind you. You have to verify your invariance and equivariance properties also on what happened behind you if it's part of your your input signal, right? Mm -hmm. And so then you will see basically jaywalkers and you will have to learn features about these jaywalkers even though they don't relate to directly optimizing your end goal, which is in this case would be drive straight. And so now linking back to my daughter, Cassie, I tried to teach her biking by teaching her to bike. But when I taught her the principles about biking, right, about how not to fall, basically, then she learned how to bike because she had internalized the principles. And it's basically the same thing here is that it internalized the principle of you have to explain what's happening around you because you might, you never know someday that jaywalkers that you've seen behind you, they might actually cross in front of you and you need to be able to represent them. Because if you don't represent them, if they're not there in your feature representation, you're not going to be able to react to them. And so that's what we found, this counterintuitive principle, which is it it generalized better, self-supervised contrastive learning generalized better, not because it captured better features from the tail, from the rare events, but because it captured more diverse features from the mode. Because all kinds of things happen around you all the time. And in the mode, you have equal diversity because you're still experiencing the same crazy world it's just that the long tail of actions, right, does not correspond to the long tail of events, of things that happen in the world. Did you find a way to control for this idea that the reason why you had increased robustness isn't necessarily that model was learning about the things in a rearview mirror? Yeah, yeah. But rather just that you gave it multiple things to do. And so in this, based on kind of what we've learned about multitask, like just having the model doing multiple things independent of what those things are it creates some robustness yeah i think i encourage people to have a look at the paper because there's a very cool visual experiment to that validates so there's some theory right Mm -hmm. and i mean of course with assumptions that not necessarily reflect all the practical applications and successes as usual yeah but under some considerations some constraints in my hypothesis we know why and we can prove it and then we have some visual experiments where we showed that basically what you do is you have an image where you have the left side that has the category that corresponds to the label, and then the right side that has a confounder or even just a black, you know, like a black image. And so then what you do is you train on that. So you basically introduce the confounder and then at test time, 
you remove that confounder or you swap it. And then what you want to see is you want to see, well, at training time, the supervised way, it will have just focused on the half part of the image that corresponds to the labels because the rest is noise. But the self-supervised part, it trained on both sides and it learned features from both sides. And then when you apply it on the test time where you said, oh, now I changed the environment and the relevant part is not on the left, it's on the right now, then the self-supervised feature says, no problem. It's still things I, I know how to represent. Whereas the supervised part is now very causally confused, right? And causal confusion is just one example of like how spurious correlations affect very negatively supervised learning and the supervisor's way. And that's why it's the same thing as the supervisors and the geofencers. You're just running after a fact. There's only one thing that's constant in the world is change, <laughs> uh, which is why you just label forever and then you're growing your operational domain and the world changes and most likely your system has to change also. So this is why the self-supervised learning is all about learning from diverse data in a diverse way. This is the whole the quality and diversity of data in the data-centric realm, which is still a bit more art than science. And that's where the, our research is. is like, like you said, data-centric is not necessarily just about scale. It's about focusing on the data and being better about using the data, designing data sets, and et cetera. But as, as you know, it's still very much more an art than a science, and we're trying to make it more into a science by using principles. In the paper that you were describing, was there a synthetic data component to that, or is that separate research? No, that's separate research. So the synthetic data, it's, it's a different set of research where the idea is there are certain sets of principles. We don't exactly know how to include them in the machine learning pipeline. Right, whether via the data augmentation that I mentioned, like contrastive learning, or whether via the self-supervised objectives that I was mentioning. And a big one is that relates to grounding and embodiment is physics, right? So we don't know how to have F equals MA into a deep net, right? Uh, we don't know how to, like, how do you make the connections? Which way do you, like, we don't know how to do that. But we know it's true. We know gravity and we want grounding into these, these systems. And that's the whole embodied AI area. And so, but what we know how to do is we know how to program it into simulators. And simulators are basically a huge opportunity for dataset generators, something what we call programmable data. You write a program, and this program generates you datasets. And these datasets are actually generated according to principles, because they're actually generated according to a program that is written by humans that represents our prior knowledge. Again, F equals MA and all these kind of things. So a lot of the things we've been doing which originally came out of necessity because sometimes you don't have the data, like for accidents or for things that are, you know, like things you want to react to and you want to anticipate, but collecting that data would be unethical or it's too rare or it's impossible. But yet you want your system to be able to handle those cases. So synthetic data is a great, great way to do that because you can program those principles into the dataset generator. And then you have basically built problem sets, you've built a curriculum, you've built a set of exercises, right, for your machine learning model to digest and internalize the principles in its own way, in its weights. So you program in human language or human code, F equals MA, generate a lot of images and videos that then you feed through the usual machinery. Again, we know how machines learn, SGD, backprop, etc. But this time we know how to teach. We teach through a simulator that is a data set generator, essentially. Yeah, in a lot of ways, there's kind of a unifying idea between that and the use of geometry that we were re referencing before. It's, you know, we've got some set of knowledge or heuristics about the way the real world works, and we use that 
to generate data and then use SGD and the, the techniques that we've proven out. And it's it's kind of interesting kind of reflecting on the, the evolution of the industry. And I, I've talked about this ad nauseum. Folks who have listened to the show for a while probably know what I'm going to say. But like, you know, we started out, you referenced your early work in computer vision. We had all of these ground up rules and equations that, you know, we built everything around and it wasn't statistical at all. We kind of swung the other end of the, the pendulum and everything we wanted to be statistical and throw out the rules. We get enough data and the system will, you know, learn the rules on its own and practice. It doesn't really make sense to throw out all the rules. And so you've had, I think, you know, some attempts at like, how do we fuse a, a real world based model with a statistical model? But I think in this conversation, both in terms of the use of geometry as well as the use of synthetic data, it's another approach, which is, well, let's just use the rules to create data or labels and then use the statistical approaches. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't have put it better. I mean, it's, it's basically we're in the age of reason now. You know, it's like there's always the pendulum swings one way or the other. You know, we know everything. We can program everything, logic, etc., which, by the way, was doomed to fail. We knew it from theory, from uh, Kurt Gödel, right? But <laughs> but then then there is the other swing of the pendulum, like you said. It's like throw it all away. It's all in the data. And honestly, it, the reason is also because it's easy. It's I mean, it's hard to make large scale systems work, but conceptually, it's just scale things up, right? And now we're in this realm where how do we get the best of both worlds? Because nothing is all good or all bad, right? It's always these gray areas, and so. Finding the best of both worlds, as you said, which is how do we use our knowledge? How do we use a data-driven approach? And how do we combine them together? And what I was trying to, to explain is that there is the using the rules to generate the data, as you said, using the rules to generate the supervision. And of course, there's all this prior knowledge that goes into the model architecture. Although now we're kind of realizing that the model architecture, we have powerful generic model architectures. So I believe that the data-centric and the self-supervision side, I think those are really where I'm, I'm excited the most about in most of our researches. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we've been digging deeper and deeper, and I feel like we're still at a fairly high level, and there's so much more. I'd love to talk through exactly how you're doing synthetic data and just go into a lot more detail. We don't have time for that this time, but maybe we'll be able to get you to TwimbleCon, which will be in the fall, to share a lot more detail. But until then, we need to speak more frequently than every three years. <laughs> yeah. All that notwithstanding, it's been a pleasure having you on the show, Adrian, and great chatting and learning about, you know, what you've been up to. Likewise. And yeah, it was very high level, but we have like, I think like 20 papers this year and they're all on my website and et cetera. So people <laughs> dig in, feel free to ping us, come to ICRA, come to CPR. Conferences are a thing again. Looking forward to TwimbleCon and, and chatting with people live. And yeah, looking forward to talking again, hopefully not in three years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Adrian. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.